Good evening and welcome to Health Beat, the WDIY program where we look at the local social determinants of health with our friends Edward Meehan and Ronald Dendis of the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health. Welcome, Ed and Ron. Good evening, Greg. Hello, Greg. Today we're going to take a look back at the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health as it reaches its one-year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you very much. <laughs> it went fast. The Pool Institute for Health was officially launched on July 1st, 2021. So let's take a look. Ed, uh, it's been a very interesting year in healthcare. Can you talk about the evolution in the Institute and, and also its inception because the Parker Pool name certainly has been with us for decades. Yes, and I'd be delighted to talk about it. Um, it begins with the intelligence and kindness and vision and uh, ability of Leonard Parker Poole and Dorothy Ryder Poole. And uh, Leonard, I think, as everyone knows, was the founder of Air Products and Chemicals. Uh, Dorothy, his first wife, was uh, his advisor, his confidant, his, his really, as, as some of his close friends described to me, the flywheel who kind of helped Leonard with all his brilliant ideas and keep them on an even keel. They were quite a team. And... Um, Leonard was always interested in health care, uh, wanted to be a physician as a young man, uh, but unfortunately couldn't do that. He had to become a Fortune 500 CEO instead. Uh, he uh, started his own company, Air Products and Chemicals, relocated it to the Lehigh Valley, and they became very immersed in civic affairs and, uh, and many charitable activities in the valley. Uh, Leonard, as I said, interested in health care and health. Dorothy, very interested in education. And they were very supportive of many, many uh, innovative projects in the Valley uh, during their life. When Dorothy became ill, Leonard was fortunate enough to be able to get her to Sloan Kettering in New York City, to Penn in Philadelphia, to McGill in Canada, and uh, was able to do that. When she passed, he spent a lot of time pondering about, I have the resources to do that. What does the average person in the Lehigh Valley do for health care and health? And so he made a real switch, dramatic pivot in his thinking and a dramatic pivot in his legacy that he left, changed his will to create the Dorothy Riderpool Healthcare Trust uh, in Dorothy's name. Uh, and it was a very unique organization. The Pool Trust was linked to the Lehigh Valley Health Network. Uh, Lehigh Valley Health Network was named as a primary beneficiary, but Mr. Pool set up the trust as a separate 501c3 uh, a trust with the named beneficiary. Um, so from 1976, when uh, just after Mr. Poole passed away, the Poole Healthcare Trustees worked very closely with the board and the senior management of LVHN through these years, began with $15 million, uh, made uh, $160 million in grants from 76 until just uh, last year, uh, and um, still had a residue of uh, about $80 million. Uh, so the, the question in the past couple of years is, how do we preserve the legacy of Leonard and Dorothy, and how do we rethink uh, a mental model that not only thinks about the fact that in 1976, Leonard understood that really good health care was extremely important, and of course it still is really extremely important, uh, but there are many things that impact health that are above and beyond health care. And so the decision wisely uh, from the Lehigh Valley Health Network Board and senior management and the Pool Healthcare Trustees was to create a new entity, 
to essentially take down the Pool Healthcare Trust, which had a limited life. It was going to go out of uh, existence in 2025. Uh, and really think in a very visionary way. Uh, I'd like to think it's what would Leonard do uh, in 2021, uh, and uh, led to the creation of the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health, uh, primarily to preserve the legacy of Leonard and Dorothy, and to really think about the, the factors that influence health in the Lehigh Valley. After the first year, Ed, what are some of the successes that you see formulating? Successes, I think there are, there are many. I think we've learned a lot. I think we've reaffirmed a lot. First of all, I think oftentimes people think of a, a, a philanthropic organization like Pool Trust as they give out money. And what we've learned is that the money is important, but it's not always the main thing. In fact, rarely is it a main thing. And so uh, the Institute is not a foundation. It's not a grant-making organization. But we hope to provide the kind of role that is necessary to achieve improvements in health by being a convener, uh, by being a facilitator, uh, by, by importing ideas from best practice from elsewhere around the country and trying to be innovative in our work. Uh, so we, we think that that is a role that, uh, and a niche that we can serve. Uh, and we've really had uh, good success in thinking about our early focus on place, on neighborhood, on community, that we really think that it, it, to be effective in change, we have to think about neighborhood-level work. Uh, I think that is bearing out in many places around the country. And for us, we're thinking about the main four social drivers, things that uh, are, should, we should focus on uh, that are above and beyond health care, um, and they have to do with uh, safe and healthy housing, uh, education, particularly thinking about uh, K through 12 cradle or cradle to college or career, food and nutrition, and community well-being and, and behavioral health, some call it. But but the idea that we should be thinking about overall how is a community doing? How are people uh, relating to one another? How do we lower the temperature, particularly in these trying and difficult times? Um, and then we've also learned that there's a need for good, hard, empirical data. Um, and not just data uh, in any one domain, not just healthcare data, but healthcare data related to housing, education, uh, uh, food, uh, economic development, etc. And hand in hand with good data, we need to think about how we engage community. And without the voice and input and leadership and wisdom from the community, uh, we'll not be able to be effective. We'll not be able to help people at the neighborhood level to do that. We have many great not-for-profit leaders in the Lehigh Valley, but everybody's kind of stuck in silos. And so uh, the ability to continue with uh, working across silos, sharing data across uh, domains and, and various uh, kind of locked-in uh, processes is really, really important. Uh, and then we really need to think about how we take all that to best advantage working at the neighborhood level and enable neighborhoods to uh, be able to better manage uh, their community affairs. Uh, so those are learnings right now, and, and we've had good, modest success with some of our early things. I'm feeling very good about how the developmental uh, work and the evolution of where we are in, in just a short year. Ron, this transition has paved a way for more data collection, hasn't it? Uh, absolutely. What types of data are you seeing that might be surprising you right now? Courtesy of a um, really good relationship with the Pool Center for Health Analytics at Lehigh Valley Health Network, what we're looking at are a whole bunch of different 
data sets from various sectors. So we're looking at housing, education, health, public safety, um, income, demographics, uh, and, and able to do that literally at a neighborhood level. So we're able to find out things from a quantitative perspective that doesn't necessarily provide us with, with the specific answers, but gives us enough knowledge to start asking better questions. And, and I, can, I can provide you with a, a really good example. We look at uh, life expectancy in, uh, in the Lehigh Valley, and we identify that uh, if you look at uh, a census tract that is four blocks away from Lehigh Valley Health Network 17th and Chu campus, life expectancy is eight years longer than if you go four blocks east of um, Lehigh Valley Health Network 17th and Chu. So an eight-year life expectancy difference in a mere eight city blocks. That, you know, that really makes you scratch your head and start asking deeper questions of why is that? What are some of the factors there? How do we get a better understanding of this so that we can use the resources that we have to dramatically improve health? Let's say that again. Eight blocks away, life expectancy varies by how many years? By eight years. Life expectancy uh, in Census Tract 23 is 82 years. Life expectancy, I'm sorry, 80, uh, 82 years life expectancy in Census Tract 20 is 74 years. So around the big question is going to be, what would be the largest determining factor in that one simple equation? Uh, and what are what are the largest determining factors? Yeah. Uh, there are going to be they're going to be multiple. And and you know to Ed's point, how do you how do you go back to fundamentals to really start understanding that instead of just jumping to ah we've got a solution here's what we need to do. And I think that's where the institute is is really strong. We have the ability to convene folks, uh, bring folks around the table. Uh, we have the ability to start helping communities engage so that uh, they can identify what's important and, and best approaches to get at this work. Uh, we can communicate data. Uh, data are not very proprietary things to us. We want to make sure that they're available to anybody and they're in a form where anybody can use them. And data aren't just numbers. They become information that are actionable. We know what to do now because of the, the data that we have. We know what questions to ask. We know what next steps we need to be taking. Ron, and we know whether that's working or not because we can loop back through evaluation. Ed, we've done a lot of shows here and and they're always very interesting. Can you please tie the connection between prenatal health and end-of-life expectancy? It's, it, it goes that far back, doesn't it? Absolutely, Greg. I think, first of all, I guess we've spent more time just looking at some things that are just obviously there. This didn't take a whole great deal of deep research. Anybody could look at census tract data and come up with that, that understanding of an eight-year disparity. Uh, I think what we're doing more than anything is, is asking questions about the obvious than coming up with solutions right now. And so I think if you look at life expectancy, people say, oh, my goodness, you know, uh, and th this is not wrong, but to say we have to think about those older people and how do we get them from 74 to 82 when, in fact, 
as you allude in your question, if you really want to get somebody from 74 to, or a community from 74 to age 82 and lead a healthy, robust life and not a, not a diminished life, you really need to think really from prenatal care on. And so it's not, it's not older people necessarily who exclusively need help, uh, but how do we think about people in their middle years and uh, what their behaviors are? How do we support them in ways that will uh, enable them to stay healthy? Uh, into their later years, and those are so frequently determined by lots of things that are beyond the control of an individual having to do with where they grew up, uh, what their parents' education level is, what their family's income level is, what kind of access they had, what kind of uh, lack of access they had. Those are really extremely important. And so uh, I'd round out your question by saying we know it's a long game. If we're going to be effective in really making a difference in the health status of the Lehigh Valley, there's not a quick fix. There's not a one button you can push. Um, Three-year grants are terrific, but three-year grants are not going to change 50 years' worth of neglect to a great degree and and what we should be doing uh, around what we're beginning to learn more uh, uh, impactfully around the things that determine health. So, yes, uh, let's start talking about healthy mamas, healthy babies. In order to do that, a lot of things have to go right. Uh, And then let's start talking about healthy babies who then have good quality early childhood education, hand off to proper education and support at the community level, hand off to thinking about the fact that in 20 years hence, those uh, babies born this year uh, will be productive and contributing and happy uh, members of the community. One of the data points that always sticks with me that we've talked about over the past year is that students have to be able to read at the third grade level by the time they're in third grade, and you have data that supports that that actually helps them live longer lives and be more productive. Yeah, and all the factors that go into making sure that they can read at at third grade. So uh, that still goes back to stable housing. It goes back to um, kids being able to grow up in environments where they're not uh, exposed to multiple incidents of trauma, um, where they can afford uh, the basic uh, fundamentals of, of life, food, safe uh, shelter, um, and they have the support of a, of a family and, and community. Ron, can you talk about some of the community engagement programs that you work with to improve the lives of the people that, hey, let's just call it that, eight block area, I know you do so much more, but with that eight block area in mind. There's um, a belief that we have had for the, for the longest time, and, and a colleague of ours um, actually used, it, used the term to describe it that really kind of made light bulbs go off on top of many of our heads, and that's this idea of, of stolen conflict, of uh, you know, folks from the outside look at a community and say, aha, we know exactly what this community needs. We know what we need this community to do in order for our organization to be successful. So we're going to impose our will on community and say, this is important to you. Here's what you need to do. Um, and in many ways, the solutions um, and the prioritization of, of uh, community problems are really the responsibility and the desire of, of that community. So how do you create the space where communities can engage and say, this is what's important, and this is how we want to go about this, and 
you know, outside uh, agencies and, and organizations, can you help us in this particular way? And that, you know, that comes down to one real uh, basic thing, and that's the community uh, being able to convene and feel connected and feel like they have a place. So when work started in, uh, in the Franklin Park neighborhood and our colleagues would talk to residents there and they'd say, where do you live? And folks, they never identified a community. They identified a street that they lived on, but they never identified the place where they lived. And so um, some very, very uh, influential residents started um, walking the streets, convening, talking to people, saying, how do we start coming together as a group? How do we start establishing place here? And one of the things that, that uh, you know, this is a, a big um, goal of the city of Allentown, to have these block ambassadors in these neighborhood groups that can do that kind of work. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to connect with uh, the good people in Franklin Park um, and provide them with some, some resources where they can organize, they can start identifying things that are important to them, they can start developing those trusting relationships amongst themselves and eventually with, um, with organizations from the outside that can provide the assistance to address the things that are important to them. And as we approach year number two, what can we expect? I think we're off to a great start, Greg. I'm, I'm so happy that we are, first and foremost, uh, keeping in mind the legacy of Leonard and Dorothy. Uh, in fact, we often kind of say, what would Leonard do? Um, and that, that vision and that, that um, energy, I think, is with us. Um, I think as we go forward, there are some things that we're just going to continue doing uh, and build upon. Uh, we need to get better at our social media. We have a, our website, but we will be expanding that and, and uh, in increasing our ability uh, that you so kindly provide to us to communicate to leaders in the Lehigh Valley. We have uh, wrapped up cohort seven of the Pool uh, Fellowship for Health, and those folks are very excited to continue a lot of the work we're doing. We're having communities of practice with them on a regular basis. Just had one a couple of weeks ago on human trafficking. A uh, great deal of interest there that, that we can talk more about in the future. We're connecting. Uh, I, I was just recently asked to speak at a national meeting of, uh, of communities that are uh, doing similar work in, on social determinants of health. And i got to say, just to, to, again, the idea importer role of the Institute, just to kind of do a scan around the country about folks who are doing this kind of work, we're in a pretty good spot. We've got a lot of assets and a lot of the leadership and a lot of the capacity that uh, I'm, I'm not particularly envious of any other community and say, oh, boy, they've got it so much better than us. I think we're in a pretty good space right now. I think we need to do more on a deeper dive on uh, housing as a determinant and particularly precarious housing and think about that particularly in our, our pilot initial uh, uh, partners in Franklin Park. More data, more data, more data, but not just gobs of data without the analytics. We need to still get smarter about uh, cross-sectorial analytics on what does it mean, what are the implications, and how do we work more on that. Uh, and again, and if we're going to talk about uh, data, it's no data without the story. Uh, and so we need to get better at understanding and, and, and enhancing our ability to uh, have a, a 
respectful and productive relationship at the neighborhood community level. I think we'll, we'll keep going in Franklin Park, of course, because this is 20-year work. But I think we also want to think about other neighborhoods in the Lehigh Valley and think about uh, the, the kind of leadership there. So, again, one of our mantras, no data without the story, and conversely, no story without the data. We'll keep marrying that. We'll keep asking annoying questions. Uh, and hopefully those annoying questions will lead us to some provocative ways to say, okay, let's pull on that string a little bit and see where it takes us. So as you look forward, Ron, to Cohort 8, what do you hope to accomplish with this new group? Yeah, you know, with with the establishment of the Institute, let me take a step back and talk about sure. what Cohort 7 did, because sure. I think they're paving the way for just incredible opportunities. Because of the, the, the work of the Institute, there's place, there are data, uh, there are cross-sector partnerships in place. And so when the cohort, uh, cohort 7 came in, uh, we, we had reintroduced this idea of um, action learning. How do you take all the valuable things that you are learning, the skills that you are developing through these incredible faculty that come from all over the country uh, to the Lehigh Valley to help us, uh, how do you start applying that in a way that a, gives you the opportunity for some real-life experience with this work, and B, contributes to a much larger uh, contribution to the, the community. And um, what, what Cohort 7 had decided to do with their learning was they wanted to understand a little bit more about the neighborhood, about the history that, uh, that uh, was, was part, you know, some of the formations of how housing got to the, to the position that uh, it's in now, uh, they wanted to do some asset mapping. They wanted to understand from a community level what the values are, um, what the what the uh, where the strengths of of the community lie, instead of relying on outside information to determine that. Um, and they wanted to start launching some some collaborative efforts to address some of the the key things here. So they set this incredible tone and set a really good bar for cohort eight uh, to to say, okay, how do we uh, help improve the work that's happening in, in the space that the Institute is providing for us and make that available to everybody, to residents, to partners, to collaborators, so that this work becomes one long collaboration instead of a series of one-offs. I think one of the most important things that I'd like to make clear to the, our audience is that this very deep dive into data in these very complicated technical discussions yield healthy food for people who need it, yield better housing for people who need it, yield better health care for people who need it. So it's a circuitous way to arrive at the end product, but there's so much data that helps formulate this end product. Uh, and you've been doing this for now how many years? We've been at it. We've been in the field for a while. Ron, Ron and I have worked together for 23 years. Uh, we've been at this for quite some time. The, you know, the concept of social determinants has been in the literature for about 40 years. It just hasn't been acted upon, and I, it's timely. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a long game. We, we've created very, very stressful, busy times for not-for-profit leaders, for healthcare leaders, for nurses, for doctors, for educators. Um, and everyone's so busy doing that it's hard 
to enable people to have the space and the time to just say, let's stop for a minute. What are we trying to achieve? And how are we, can we go about it in a way that we can create win-win-win opportunities? So what I've been saying of late is, look, you know, I love it when somebody understands their own enlightened self-interest. I need to get this done. Oh, wait a minute. I can't get that done without thinking more about how I cooperate with others. Great. Here's my enlightened self-interest. I'm willing to do the work necessary. I'm willing to do the awkward, uncomfortable, and labor-intensive stuff as opposed to doing the stuff I've been doing, which doesn't get me where I need to be. So enlightened self-interest is powerful. I think with looking at data in an objective way and looking at the voice and hearing the voice of the community, I think win-win-win opportunities are very, very possible. Uh, and just go round the wheel. Food security is a determinant of health. Health is a determinant of education. Education is a determinant of income. Income is a determinant of housing. Housing is a determinant of economic vitality. Mutual dependence and concerted action is best understood and measured at the local level. That's what we need to do. And we need to have the capacity to measure and analyze both the qualitative and quantitative data across these silos in a way that gives us more questions, frankly, and creates the opportunity to do this work. Congratulations on the one-year anniversary of the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health to both uh, Ed and Ron, and of course, uh, oh wow, all the folks that we've had on the air over the past year, and uh, a special shout-out to Bridget, who helps put all this together on a monthly basis. If people want to learn more about everything that you do, what's the website again? www.lppih.org lppih.org. You really need to take a look at this if you're listening to this program and find this interesting because you'll learn about how important all this interconnectivity is. And Greg, there's, there's, we've got the homepage set up, but as I said, we're, there's more to come. We, want, we need to get smarter and better about telling the story. And that's why we're here. Amen. Ed and Ron, gentlemen, once again, thank you for a terrific show. Good evening. And thank you to our listeners. For listening to HealthBeat on WDIY in Allentown. I'm your host, Greg Caponia. Have a great evening. WDIY Lehigh Valley Public Radio, your trusted local NPR member station for over 25 years. Many choices, real voices.